Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Maxine Beneba-Clark to the final episode of our Books, Books, Books Summer Series, which has featured eight great Australian women writers. Maxine is the author of over 10 books for adults and children. Today, we'll be talking about her fourth book of poetry, How Decent Folk Behave, published by Hachette in 2021. Let me start by telling you a little bit about Maxine. She writes fiction, non-fiction, children's books, which she also illustrates at times, poetry, essays and journalism, which has been published in The Age, The Saturday Paper, The Guardian, amongst others. Maxine studied arts law at Wollongong University, majoring in creative writing, and I was interested to see she did the law degree because she thought she'd never make a career as a writer. So she clearly hasn't needed to uh, turn to being a lawyer. After publishing some books of poetry, Maxine published her first short story collection, Foreign Soil, which won the 2015 Arbier Award for Literary Fiction Book of the Year and the 2015 Indie Book Award for Debut Fiction. Her memoir, The Hate Race, won the 2017 New South Wales Premier's Literary Award Multicultural Award and was shortlisted for several other prestigious awards, including the Stella Prize. Also in 2017, her poetry collection, Carrying the World, won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Poetry. In 2019, Maxine became the inaugural Poet Laureate for the Saturday Paper. We're going to talk about that. And in that role, she wrote poems about everything from the federal election to franking credits. In 2021, Maxine won the Civic Choice Award in the Melbourne, very prestigious Melbourne Prize for Literature. And that's a People's Choice Award where people voted for Maxine as their top choice, which is a wonderful honour. Congratulations. Maxine, welcome to Books, Books, Books. I've been a fan since I read Foreign Soil all those years ago, and I'm absolutely delighted to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be on the podcast. Now, I'm going to start by asking you to read a poem from the collection we're talking about today, How Decent Folk Behave. I thought I'd read uh, one of the first poems in the book, and it's titled When the Decade Broke. The stroke of midnight, December 31st, 1999, was going to end the world. At the hospital, they brought the generators in, Even the food service staff were kept till late evening. None of us would get to, ah, at the most expensive fireworks on earth, lighting up a new century. If the power cut out, we planned to spend Armageddon pigging out on the frosting Sarah Lee and handing out the bottled water down in maternity. We would control the food, we joked, and therefore everything. In the new century, We, the workers, would be king. Just like one day we'll say, where were you on December 31, 2019? And perhaps more importantly, who were you 
before the decade turned. Don't look at me like that. You know what I mean. Who were you when thunder was made from our protesting children's feet? When 45, the then president of the United States of America had just been impeached. We'll say to young ones, unthinkable now, isn't it? That back then in this city, women's bodies were sometimes found naked from the waist down. We would gather in the parks for candlelight vigils. That in this very place, the decade before revolution came, nobody led the four prime ministers rose and fell. Innocent black folk were shot at point blank rage range regularly across the world and often incarcerated for no valid reason at all. Don't avert your eyes from mine. You should know what this place was. Earth on fire from the redwoods of California to Australia's east coast. My God, the furnaces that burned. In Brazil, they lost a good part of the Amazon. The sea drew back and tsunamis lashed out in Samoa and Sumatra. The water rose in Sulawesi and Nagasaki. In the new decade, we will say, the world was not always this beautiful way. In some countries, small children starved to death every single day. But all that slowly started to change and powerful men were brought to trial for heinous acts of hate. We threw them out and re-legislated. They'd made the churches far more powerful than the state. For a good while there, we thought we were doomed, that it was all just way too late. But the decade turned. The decade turned and suddenly we were wide awake, lined along the gunpowdered foreshore. Faces tilted to the sky, watching revolution break. Thank you so much, Maxine. I want to say, which is true, that's one of my favourite poems in the book, but it's very, very hard to pick between any of them. We're going to be talking about that that poem a little bit later. I've picked a few. I wish we could talk about all of them, but I've picked a few to talk about, and that's one of them. First, I want to start by asking you just some general questions. You have described this poetry collection, How Decent Folk Behave, as very much a coming home saying that poetry is the medium I fell in love with when I first fell in love with writing. Could you tell us a little bit about when and how you did fall in love with poetry? I was always that kid in primary school who, you know, when the class had to write a poem, whether it was about, you know, an unusual pet that you've imagined or, you know, what you did over the summer, that it was my favourite exercise. And, you know, whenever we got the opportunity to read poetry at primary school, which wasn't very often, you know, it's not something that's kind of heavy on the syllabus. It was kind of, I I really like this, but I didn't really find it many places in the library. Um, When I was in high school, you know, we studied Plath and Keats and, you know, a lot of poets kind of seen as as classical poets. Uh, But my family also had a massive record collection. And so, you know, that was part of my poetic initiation was reading those liner notes, which of course are lost now, you know, in the digital age, but sitting going through the the backs of, uh, you know, my mum and dad's records or later on CDs that I bought myself, I think that was my first poetic education. Um, But, you know, I wasn't a, a musician really and so kind of what I loved was actually reading them off the page. Um, 
I'm interested to see the epitaph to this collection is a quote from Nina Simone. An artist's duty, as far as I'm concerned, is to reflect the times. Is that how you see your role as a writer and a poet? Yeah, I think, you know, those the books that I read that I love and that I kind of find really inspiring are books that, you know, the storytelling is first and foremost and the use of language is first and foremost, but they're also bringing something really poignant to say about the time that that person was living in or what was going on. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean the poem has to be overtly political um, in that kind of sense of reflecting what's going on in Parliament or historically. It could be a personal poem about a relationship between two people, but there's some kind of, um, I suppose, some kind of extra thing that tells you something about the time in which it was created. Um, and, I, yeah, I found that quote really liberating because I think as a poet you're often taught that writing about things outside of your own personal life is a bit didactic, you know, that, well, that's not a poem. It should be a piece of political commentary or it should be, you know, something that's an opinion piece in the age. Um, and so, yeah, that quote was quite freeing. And when I think of, you know, songs that Nina Simone sang like Mississippi Goddamn, which is, you know, a phenomenal musical feat when you listen to it. So how is this even possible? But it's also, of course, the content is defining that particular time. We're going to talk a bit later also about the role of art and the role of a writer. You've said this about writing poetry, which I found really interesting, probably not surprising, but really interesting. The most difficult part of writing poetry is that sense of vulnerability, saying this is my experience and it's something that needs to be talked about. Would you like to talk a little bit about that, about that feeling of vulnerability? Yeah, I think for me, poetry is, it's impossible to hide in poetry. You know, people often talk about writing semi-autobiographical fiction um, and you can, and, you know, I've done that with some, you know, some characters in some short fiction, short fiction I've written really resemble my life, but the minute you push it into fiction, you're distancing yourself and you're adding all of these elements that aren't of your life and you can keep it at arm's length and say, no, no, this is a character, you know, even though they're my age and my ethnic background and live where I live, they're completely separate from me. Um, and even in writing memoir, I found that I was even thinking of myself as a character, you know, in order to write the story, I was almost thinking of it as fiction, you know, how do I create this character of Maxine and move her about in the world? And with poetry, I feel like that isn't there. You know, that even when I'm writing about, you know, the, the trauma of, for example, living on a Centrelink payment or, you know, in a general sense of talking about this idea of welfare and poverty, um, as I do in, in, in a couple of poems in the book, or talking about, um, yeah, things that I'm not, you know, there's a poem called Banking Day, which kind of refers to the Banking Royal Commission and it's about this idea of essentially being trapped by big banking um, as an individual. I, I have to ask myself before I start, okay, well, where do I stand in relation to this topic? You know, what is my life experience in terms of banking or in terms of living on welfare or fair or in terms of being a woman about in the world? And you kind of can't write the poem without thinking about that. 
and without identifying to yourself where you stand and, okay, how am I going to fit that into this, this poem? Um, and so, yeah, I think fundamentally it just takes away that the distance between the reader and the writer almost. There's this vulnerability that, okay, if I'm going to, if I'm going to talk about this topic, I really need to go there, um, and which is both terrifying as a writer, I think, and liberating in a way as well. Maxine, I'm going to turn now to talk about some of the particular poems. As I say, I only wish I could deal with more of them. There are eight chapters plus a prologue in your book and the, the chapters are roughly um, themed by subject matter. Most of them are pretty dark topics, as you indicated, and we're going to see domestic violence, racism, violence against women, pandemic, refugees, welfare. I mean, there's a whole string of them. But it seems to me that there's a very strong thread of hope running through many of these poems and through the collection as a whole. And that's something I'd like to focus on as we talk about each of the, the poems that I've selected. So the first one that I'd selected was When the Decade Broke, which was the one that you've just read to us. Um, my first question was, tell us what it's about. But listeners, you've heard it now, so you know what it's about. Um, I really felt in this one that there was a sense of hope and that you were projecting into a beautiful, more positive future where we will look back on Trump and climate change and violence against women and people of colour as things of the past. You talk about these times as being before the revolution came. You write about things changing, of powerful men being brought to trial. Do you really believe there'll be a revolution like this and how will it come about? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, that poem now, because obviously that was written at the end of 2019. We're coming into a new decade and it was kind of like, we need we need a reckoning. We had COVID, yes, but we also had Trump being kicked out. We had the Black Lives Matter movement across the world, um, climate change really more prominently on the agenda. Um, and so in a way, some of that hope has eventuated, yes, through often tragic circumstances. But I guess the question for me when writing that poem is, it was kind of, I want to write a poem that's about the end of an era, you know, mm. hopefully the end of an era in which really people have not been that kind to each other. But how do you reflect on that and also be positive? Like hope is so important. Um, you know, it's important that we don't only have hope, that we take actions toward mm. that, that hopeful future. But I think that was the task I set myself was how do I, well, what kind of future do I envision, envisage? Um, I often think a lot about, I mean, I don't write speculative fiction, but climate change in particular speculative fiction is so huge right now. And I often ask myself, you know, I don't think I've ever read a speculative fiction book that imagines a better future or a better world than the one we have now. It's always post-apocalyptic and, you know, it's going to be, the world's going to be barren and we're all going to be walking around in spacesuits and there'll be no food and, you know. And so, yeah, I suppose it was, that was the challenge I set myself was, well, what does a future look like? What does need to change? And, um, you know, imagine if it does. And we can look back and say, oh, gosh, those were pretty dark times. But, you know, we clawed our way out of them. Let's look now at the other, uh, one of the other poems in that section, When the Decade Broke. Uh, it's called Generation Zoom. And I really like 
this one as well, because you pointed out some of the positives that can't have come out of COVID. And some of them are very prosaic, but they're absolutely right. You've got dad doing the vacuuming, spending more time with his kids. You've got the whole family pitching in to help with the cooking. They're all in the same time zone. And you've got parents acknowledging that their son is gay and that it's okay for his partner to ring the home because they realise that during a pandemic, love is gold. I thought that was just a beautiful message. So I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about that concept without either of us being Pollyanna-ish about it, of how despite the terrible hard times, there are some positives that have come out of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it is, you're right. It's very difficult to kind of, I suppose, talk about because, you know, in a way in Australia, no matter what our situation, um, a lot of us are in a position of privilege in the sense of, you know, many of us have a home to be living in. We were kind of protected from a virus in a way because of our geographical isolation. So I don't want to make light of the fact that this pandemic has been horrific for a large number of people. But at the same time, you know, this poem Generation Zoom really was me looking at the younger generation. So my kids who are, you know, 11 and 16 now and were, you know, 9 and 14 when this whole thing began. It's weird to think of it in those terms of what proportion of your kid's life Mm. the pandemic has been going on for. Um, and looking at them and thinking, yeah, this has been has been really difficult and not being able to go to school and not being able to see their friends and, you know, all of those things, but also looking at the positives that have, have come out of things um, and that it's not, you know, really I guess the poem is looking at the generation that uh, how that generation has changed for the better because of COVID um, and, the yeah, the ways in which that's happened. And I think, you know, yeah, a lot of the poems in this book really are about young people being, inheriting the world. Um, and, yeah, this, this was just about that. They're, that they found ways, you know, whether it was through Zoom calls with their friends or whether it was through, you know, having their parents held captive and being able to kind of, you know, give them, give us their politics a bit more. Um, yeah, I think in, in some ways kids have changed and in some ways for the better. Yeah. Let's look at the next chapter, Rain, which deals largely, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, reducing this collection of beautiful complex poems to a few words, but insofar as I can, the chapter on rain is, is largely to do with climate change and damage to our environment and slotting in exactly to what you've just been talking about. I'd like you to talk about the poem Fridays and what that's about. So the poem Fridays, it's a fairly short poem and it's it's just to do with the Fridays March for Climate movement. Um, I wanted to write something that was kind of an anthem to all of these kids that, you know, to me it was such a powerful image that, you know, on Fridays it was kind of like, Mum, I'm going to get on the bus and go into the city and, and protest for, for climate change. And so just seeing that happening and and one day, you know, I was kind of doing errands around my neighbourhood and saw this long line of kids walking from my son's school down to the station. Thought, what are they doing? Oh, yeah, it's Friday. They're going to. And just that powerful image of literally an abandoned school and these kids just streaming out. 
and thinking, you know, these children are trying to save the world. You know, it was such a devastating moment, but also realising how they were mobilising and, you know, the way they were sending the climate, much, much for climate viral on their iPhones and, you know, kind of holding each other up, you know, in terms of, um, you know, sharing each other's activism and things like that. And, um, you know, it's inspiring as an adult and also it's a tragedy to realise, oh, my gosh, you know, we've, we've ruined the world for these children to such an extent that they're leaving behind their education, you know. But, again, my sense with this beautiful poem was that there was a really strong thread of hope running through it, that this is our future, that these kids have the maturity and the courage to do what the adults should be doing but aren't, protesting on behalf of the environment or not enough of us are. You describe the children as brave and sure and smart. I really love that. And am I right in saying that you, on the one hand, we as adults can feel a collective guilt that it's things are so bad that our kids have to, you know, leave their school day to go and protest. But on the other hand, there's enormous hope to think that they are so passionate mm-hmm. and that they have the courage, um, I guess, and the maturity to to get out and, and march like that. Yeah, hope and also, yeah, just pride, I think, as, as a parent. You know, you might have that guilt that it's your generation and the many generations before that have led to this. But, um, you know, it, it takes courage. There was this kind of, I suppose, perception among some parts that, you know, just kids just wanting to wag school and things yeah. like that. But, um, you know, to actually get out on the street and protest is a, is a massive um, a massive big deal, especially when you're, you know, these even teenagers, we think of them as almost adults, but they're, you know, they're tiny. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, this... Um, and I think for for adults and for those in power, it should be such a powerful image. You know, if you see a child standing in front of you saying, please do something about this, or if you see a million children, um, it is, it's incredibly impactful. Let's go to the next chapter, Something Sure, which, again, not wanting to reduce it to a few words, but deals broadly speaking with issues relating to women. Well, that's not right relating to all of us, let's say about women, Mm -hmm. domestic violence, feminism, being a mother, racism, the intersection of racism and sexism. Let's start with the poem Something Sure. There we have a mother speaking to her son, educating him about male violence, in particular domestic violence, and urging him to be the man who stands up, who has women's backs, who prevents other men from doing the wrong thing. And this mother says at one point in this poem that, She's taught her son how decent folk behave. How did that become the title of this collection? Titles are really interesting to me. Um, And often for my books, they don't get titled until the end, probably with the exception of The Hate Race, my memoir, they don't get titled until the very end. And so I'd finished putting these poems together and just went through so many different titles. And I thought this has to be a title which encapsulates the entirety of the book. I think that's the problem with choosing a title for a book of collected poems where the the topics are so disparate. And for a while it was called Something Sure, the the title of this poem. 
And then I thought that it doesn't that doesn't really kind of say what I'm going to say. So I kind of read through the whole collection and that particular line, I thought, you know, this book really is about well, what does it mean to be part of society? What does it mean to be a good, in inverted commas, human being? What does it mean to behave in a good manner towards other humans? Decent, just fundamental yeah. decency, yeah. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, once I settled on that line, I thought, yes, this is exactly what this is about, this idea of um, what we owe to each other, I think. Again, it seems to me this sense of hope that what you're saying is if all mothers taught their sons in this way, talked to them, encouraged them to stop other men they saw behaving in a way that was denigrating women, that they could make a difference. Do you feel that sense of hope? I do feel that sense of hope. Um, and I think, you know, partly this poem was penned because of that notion that it is it's women that need to fix this problem. You know, it's women that are taking the microphones and that are marching the streets. And, and, and what if we talk to our boys at a younger age and said, look, this is happening. And, and you know, also that notion of, you know, as a parent, you always want to know that you've raised respectful children. Um, but as the mother of a of a boy, you know, you also want to know, well, would they say anything if mm. they saw something? Mm. Because it's not just about that one man, <laughs> you know. And and um and yeah, so thinking about that and also wanting to create, you know, a lot of my books, Foreign Soil and a Hate Race, are studied in schools. So I did write this thinking of the boys I've, I've met on school tour, tours and what conversations are they having in the schoolyard amongst their friends? Are they saying to each other, look, that's really not a great thing to say, you probably shouldn't say things like that, because we know that it's not just about uh, that woman who's murdered by her domestic uh, her partner in an act of domestic violence. It's about all of those tiny little acts that led up. Mm. Um, and so creating that culture amongst boys of them pulling each other up and saying, this is not okay. Um, and why aren't we talking more about that? You know, not as a way to uh, blame boys for things they haven't done, but as a way to educate them that there is a problem and they can be part of the solution. Let's talk about the poem My Feminism, which she says after Flavia Zodan. Now, excuse my ignorance, but I didn't know who she was, so I looked her up and I saw that in a 2011 essay in the feminist blog Tiger Beatdown, Flavia wrote an essay entitled My Feminism Will Be Intersectional or It Will Be Bullshit. Start by telling us a bit about intersectional feminism and then I want to ask you about the impact that essay has had on you generally and in writing this poem. Intersectional feminism really is about the idea that as women, there are various parts of our identity which intersect with each other. You know, for me, I'm a black woman um, and the fact that I am black means that I experience, for example, the world, the world completely different to the way, you know, the blonde woman sitting next to me might experience the world. And that when we look at feminism, you know, whether it's a woman with a disability or a woman of colour, um, 
we should be taking into account and talking about and incorporating the intersections of our identity instead of just kind of thinking, well, you're a woman, so you should think this and you should agree with this. Um, And I think historically, you know, Western feminism has not been particularly good at incorporating the lives and experiences of non-white, not just non-white, you know, it's also to do with class, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes to do with geography, the difference between li- women living in the country, women living in a city, all of those kinds of things, that there needs to be a feminism which actually takes those things into account. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Flavia's, you know, Flavia's essay was very much a kind of just just to say this is not on, you know, this is not feminism. Feminism takes into account all women. And so I think I was inspired by that. I was also aware that that essay in its long form, it was kind of something that almost turned into a soundbite over time. You know, you get these T-shirts saying my feminism will be intersectional with people not even really knowing Mm. what what does intersectional even mean? It just became... Um, taken completely out of context. So it seemed to, what it's really saying is inclusive, right? My feminism yes. will be inclusive. inclusive. And that's, yeah. yeah. And that's how you, and this poem is so beautiful and so stirring, and I love the rhythm of it. it. It does to me have the sound of a rallying cry and the emphasis on it will be for everyone. It will be kind. It, it will be inclusive. You write in several poems about the particularly negative experiences of black women and women of colour. In the hospital system is one example, as victims of male violence and as victims of racism as well as everything else. Tell us a bit about your poem, Proximity. So the poem, Proximity, really was about the different way that women of colour are reported on in the media, are mourned when they pass away through acts of violence or domestic, uh, you know, domestic abuse when they're murdered and the different way that they're perceived by everyone, really. Um, it follows a poem in the book, um, The Monsters Are Out, which is about really... You know, we had this spate of quite public murders of women in Melbourne. And so I'd written that poem. And they were white women. They were mostly white women, yes, or, or you know, white adjacent, if, if not, you know, considered strictly Anglo. And, you know, meanwhile you have numerous First Nations women, um, you know, dying at the hands of their partners or at the hands of police who, you know, in, in, in the poem Proximity, it says, you know, you, you maybe you maybe you did learn their names, but you forgot them after a while, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that sense of yeah, that even in death, even in the most violent misogynistic act, um, women are treated differently. According to their race. Yes. Yes. And you, you make the point, I think that's a really strong point that you make in that poem that that white women don't relate as much because that's that terrible old concept of that's not someone like you, that's not someone who could be your neighbour or your daughter or your best friend, mm-hmm. that that they see that woman as somehow something different from them and so it seems more removed than, for instance, the murder of Jill Maher. 
Yes, and I think this poem was probably the most difficult in the collection to write. I mean, it's a fairly short poem. It went through so many different edits because it is titled Proximity and how do you Mm. get across this really complex idea of what I'm actually trying to say is the closer you are to what is seen as that ideal woman in, in Australia in a predominantly Anglo society, the more you will be mourned. And not even necessarily the closer you are physically or aesthetically, but also you think, oh, well, she was before she was murdered, she was drinking at that bar that I went to. And she worked at, you know, the ABC, which is where I work next to you. You know, that sense of, well, that could be me. Therefore, yes. I pick up a candle and go to this vigil. Yes. And yeah, I think, you know, it really moves on, I guess, or relates to that idea of intersectionality. And um you know, I suppose that the extra, the extra burden that you bear if you don't fit within that, you know, accepted wheelhouse of something. I want to ask you a few general questions now about your role as the poet laureate for the Saturday paper. So, a number of these po- that was twenty nineteen. You were you were made the poet after you'd been writing a series of pen portraits for them over the years, and then you segued into this role as poet laureate. I wanted you just for a moment to talk about that and what it meant. Um, did you have an obligation to produce a certain number of poems each month? Were you told the topics to write about? Just tell me a little bit about that role because I know that quite a lot of these poems, certainly a, a fair number, uh, have come from that time when you were working as a poet laureate for the Saturday paper. Yeah, so for several years, for about five or six years, I worked for the Saturday paper initially writing a section called Portrait, which was interviews with interesting people from, you know, Jack Charles to Hugh Jackman to, you know, musicians and... Santa um, Claus. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and then after I'd done that for about six years, I kind of said to the editor, look, I think I'm, I've done as much <laughs> as I do. Um, and he kind of said, what would you like to do? And I kind of almost as a joke said, you should have a poet laureate. Just let me write a poem every week on a political issue and he went away and he said look I'll go away and I'll discuss it with my staff which I just took to mean no but I don't want to tell you no I want to make out like it's someone else's fault and then he came back to me and said yes our, our cartoonist had just has just retired so that was a stroke of luck for me so he said we have a regular spot and a regular salary I mean, when I say salary, obviously, it's not a full-time job to write one poem a week. But um, so he said, we can accommodate a poem. And so, oh, look, to be honest, it was it was an incredible thing to kind of map what was happening in politics in, in poetry every week. And little but, did you know a pandemic was coming at you exactly, when you took that gig. Exactly. And as a as a, you know, Firstly, the time that I would have to do this poem was so limited. So they would give me my topic on a Tuesday or I would propose. So sometimes I'd propose something and they'd say, yes, sounds great, we've got nothing on that topic. Sometimes I'd propose something and they'd say, well, we've already got a two-page article on that. So could you do something? Because it's a weekly paper that comes out on a Saturday, they'd say, well, something's happened quite late in the news cycle that we haven't been able to get anyone to cover. So could you do a poem on franking credits or could you do a poem on, you know, something that I never, ever in a million years would have written a poem on. So that was tricky. And also it was a 48-hour turnaround. So the paper. Produce print- a poem on demand within 48 hours. Yeah. Wow. 
So I just barely slept. You know, it was kind of a case where I'd have 48 hours of not sleeping trying to whack out this poem and then I'd catch up on that and then the next round would come. And so I just kind of thought I cannot do this for more than a year. It's it's madness. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was it was a beautiful thing to do for a year. And then after a year, I kind of roped in some other poets and said, let's do it. We each do one a month, and that's much more manageable. And then they graduated. Who were they, Maxine? Who yeah. were the others you brought in? Um, Ellen Van Nieven, and who's a First Nations poet, um, and Omar Saka, uh, who's a, a, a Lebanese-Australian um, poet. And it was actually great. We did it for about three months, I think, together. Um, and, you know, we had a camaraderie in terms of sending each other the poem and what do you think of this and, and that was great. And then I left actually because, and I left because I thought it felt almost unfair to hang around. You know, I thought I've had this for a year and I've given, um, it, you know, I've, I've, I've amassed this readership and other people should have the chance to kind of get people used to their style and stuff. And then shortly after that, the, po- the paper decided, yeah, we're just not going to do poetry anymore. So <laughs> I feel a little bit guilty. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was just one of those things that, oh, why not have poetry in a newspaper? It's a, it's a, I think it's a fantastic idea. Yeah, and the readers really, you know, people used to write into the letters section and say what they liked about a particular poem or, you know, what they didn't like about a particular poem and it became this kind of ongoing conversation between the readership and and the poet, which I never in a million years thought I'd have. You've said about writing poetry during the pandemic. I wrote poetry during the pandemic to process, to meditate on the world that was, to try and make some sense of things as a writer and hopefully to offer some peace to at least one reader somewhere, somehow. Was writing poetry a source of comfort and solace to you or is it still as the pandemic continues? Yeah, definitely. I think as a writer it is, you know, poetry is the form that I turn to when you almost think how am I possibly going to talk about this? what kind of language can I find to talk about something that is, whether it's so emotional or so important or so beautiful, I instinctively turn to poetry. Um, And I often say a lot of my other work, because obviously poetry is not commercial. You know, you're never going to make a million dollars at it, unless you're a rupee cow, then, you know. Um, And so, yeah, it's also that sense of, you know, I often think my other work is, well, how do I write poetry but still make an income? You know, all of my kids' yes. are poems. Yes. You know, if you printed them out on an A4 page, they're just read as a poem, but suddenly you put pictures to it and people will buy it for their kids, you know, or The Hate Race, my memoir, which has these poetic refrains through it, you know, even though it's prose kind of in every chapter, it has this kind of storytelling refrain. So I feel like it's something that I use in all of my work my kind of most immediate, um, the, the tool, the toolbox is so big with poetry, you know, with prose, I almost feel like I'm writing with one hand tied behind my back. You, know, you don't have all of the, all of the kind of bells and whistles that you need. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit now about art and the role of art and especially the role of art during difficult times. 
in your beautiful poem, The Memory of Your Better Half, you write powerfully about the importance of art. You say at one point, art is at the heart of all we are. Art gives pennies back to Medicare in a beautiful passage that just sets out for the economic rationalists, the rationale for the, you know, we've all heard the argument, if you want an economic rationalist argument for the arts, which, by the way, you shouldn't need, here are some of the points. And so I love the way you do that. Art gives money back to Medicare. It clears the whole, you know, the opera and jazz reduce the number of people in hospital. Could you talk a bit about why art is so important and how critical it is for artists to speak out about the sort of social justice-related topics that you talk about? You know, I think we all underestimate the role of art in our lives. Um, And, you know, even thinking of, um, you know, I talk in the the poem about this this couple, you know, one of them has passed away and then the partner hears this song that's their song on the radio and kind of is like the way that song makes you feel you can't put a value on that, you know. Art is something that, um, you know, gives back much more than it than it costs. Um, I remember seeing once this video that was doing the rounds on all forms of social media, and there was this old African American man, and he was in a nursing home, just kind of slumped in the corner, not moving. You know, he almost looked like he'd passed away. And someone came up and put on headphones on him and it was the music of his youth. And he just, his tears started rolling down his eyes and he just smiled and it was kind of like this moment of recognition of bringing him to life. Um, and I think that can't be underestimated that everybody you know, has that one thing in their lives, whether it's a pop song or whether it's, you know, a painting that makes them feel good or whether it's, you know, the sneakers that you wear on your foot. It's art that's somehow been manufactured to a, to a corporate scale. Um, and, yeah, why shouldn't it be treated like any other, um, you know, both as a luxury and as a commodity? You know, why shouldn't it be treated as any other thing? And, and I think, you know, I wrote that at the time when, um, Scott Morrison had rolled the arts portfolio. I think he'd rolled it into transport or something like that. You, you made that point in the poem that they, yeah. they just put arts wherever they think they can. Yeah, and, and so it was just like, are you kidding me? Even in an economic sense, mm. art brings money. Yeah, it's wild because, you know, I think as a writer, of course, I'm thinking about the paper in front of me and the poem that I'm writing, how to make it beautiful. But, you know, at the other end, the book is mass produced. It goes into a bookstore. Booksellers get jobs. Graphic designers get jobs. Publishers get jobs. You know, if the fr- people are freighting the books get jobs. You know, it's, it's, it's art, but it makes no sense to detach it from the comic, <laughs> not to see that, that worth. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that poem is, I guess, trying to say that in a much more subtle way to say, you know, art is not just this gratuitous luxury item that, you know, armchair lefties sit and gaze at in their homes. It's this tangible thing that makes a difference in people's lives. Maxine, my last question. You've written across so many genres. You've written short stories. You've written essays. You've written a lot of journalism. You've written poetry, children's books. I'm wondering, for this collection, and all of your writing obviously 
has a great element of um, social justice concerns in it. But it seems to me particularly distilled in this book and, and your other books of poetry as well. So I was wondering, do you think poetry is particularly well suited as a medium to write about the sort of subjects that you tackle in this collection? And if so, why? I think that it is. I mean, I guess, as I said earlier in the interview, there is sometimes this perception, um, often by, you know, poetry purists that, um, yeah, we shouldn't be talking about politics in art. We should be writing about flowers and love and, you know, those kinds of, you know, highly emotive things. And, you know, I think why poetry is so effective in talking about those things is, it takes you out of, you know, when you're, it's almost the antithesis to news. You know, when you're reading or watching a news report, you're hearing facts. It's like, this is what happened. This side dropped this many bombs and then this side did this and this side did this and, and you know, there's a war going on. But the poetry allows you to tell people, well, this is what it feels like when a bomb is falling on your house. Um, which you can't do in, in the news. And, of course, fiction can do that, but I don't feel like it can, it can do that in as emotive and immediate a way as, as poetry can. Um, and I think also, you know, we're in this fast-moving digital world where people don't have a lot of time in their lives to consume art or to consume words. So with a poem... You can instantly, you know, in one page, you can actually make someone step outside of that um, factual news article and put themselves in someone else's shoes or invoke some kind of emotion in them. Um, and, yeah, there's a lot of poems that I've read. You know, Langston Hughes, uh, African-American um, poet, had this poem called The Coloured Soldier and the poem is about a soldier whose brother has died and they've been off fighting and the brother comes back as a kind of spirit or ghost and sits on his, his surviving brother's bed and says, at least we got what, what we fought for. We've got equality and I know that black men in the United States now have equal rights and, I'm, you know, I don't mind dying because I know that your whole life is going to be different. And the brother says to him, it was a lie. Um, and just that scenario, kind of imagining that and saying, you know, all of these black men were tricked in standing on the front line, you know, told that there's going to be equality after this and, and you know, maybe they had a taste of equality in the trenches because that are equal rations and things like that. And, and it's just, you know, it's a three-page poem and tells this entire story of this generation of, of black soldiers. Um, and to me, having read poems like that, I think, Oh, you don't need a short story. You don't need a novel. Um, you just need that two pages of going, oh, my gosh, I've never even thought about that. You know, this is something that's maybe completely outside of my experience. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's it's fast, it's emotive, it's immediate, and and I think people come to poems differently than they come to other other types of literature. You know, you kind of you open a poetry book and you almost sit down with a completely open, it's like, oh, I'm going to read a poem, <laughs> you know. I did also wonder if maybe po poems might be coming a bit 
more back into vogue for all the reasons. For, so I think this is what you're getting at, the fact that all of us have got a much shorter attention span these days. We're so used to reading tweets and other things on social media and getting news bites. I'm wondering if, in a way, that might be a really positive thing for poetry that might sort of uh, lead to a resurrection of people being more um, open to reading poetry than perhaps they, they had been up till now. Yeah, I hope so. I really hope so. My old poetry professor from uni always says poetry is the first social media. (laughs) I love it. We're going to end on that note. Maxine, this is the most beautiful collection. I actually am right now going to go, I'm on my way to a bookshop, I'm going to go and buy numerous copies and give it to lots of people who I love, who I know will appreciate it. Congratulations. Thank you. Enjoy this year getting out and talking about it. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks for such wonderful questions. Thank you, Maxine. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.